0: St. Augustine was a guy, and as men tend to do, he died, but he left us a big book. So let's stop and take a look. This is Two Cities, Three Rooms.
1: We bring with us, at our birth, says Augustine, the beginning of our death. This week's cheery conversation in the city of God broaches birth sex death
2: one thing we've learned from reading Augustine is that we never quite know uh, how he's going to discuss a topic he's orderly he's got a plan but he's never tedious
0: in book 13 he talks about original sin which makes him talk about human fallenness and how that gets passed from generation to generation
1: and that generational part makes him talk about the body and the soul in human nature.
0: And of course you can't talk about what's wrong
2: in the human condition without talking about death and dying.
1: So it's not a chipper book, but it may be a book we need, or at least it's talking about things we need to talk about, especially in the wake of pandemic 2020, 2021, and so on. We
0: are the Three Rubes, and we're glad you're joining us
1: for this conversation. So our first topic. Let's just designate it hurt. Rome is in decline. Rome has been sacked. And there are all these, you know, bright-faced conservatives trying to say Rome's greatest days lie ahead, but the evidence is pointing very seriously in the opposite direction. Possibilities for violence everywhere, violent death. Augustine, he's saying there's actually in book 13, there he addresses the the moral fact that what makes life so hard is not just the imminent possibility of personal death or the, the the possibility of the fall of Rome, but our disconnection from God. And he says that disconnection has started a chain of disasters. That's his phrase, a chain of disasters. Ethan, as you think about original sin as it's like described in this book, um, how do you see issues of citizenship showing up
2: when he's talking about the the consequences of uh of the, the sin of adam and the fact that we sort of inherited these bodies and death through them there's sort of a uh, i don't know a sense that the that, that, uh, the whole of civic life gets turned around um, and sort of turned on its head in light of original sin and as as uh, Augustine is talking about it. There's sort of that, uh, that section where he has a lot of that was then, this is now statements in re- um, referring to our relationship to law and particularly to death, where transgression at one point led to uh, a penalty like up until the point of Christ. Uh, transgression of the law led to penalty but then somehow uh, in some sort of mystical fashion not accepting the penalty becomes the thing that the very thing that leads you toward sort of like the final penalty and i think for civic life i think that's a that's a pretty important recapturing of like Hmm. i don't know a sense of uh, self-sacrifice and hardiness i think uh probably pretty similar to us nowadays they uh when usually when it when a empire is getting too comfortable Hmm. like rome was or like we are we suddenly become very averse to all forms of pain um, because we've enjoyed mm. so much pleasure in so many forms in, in when you're talking about reconnecting to God and the life that God has given um, you're talking about reconnecting to all aspects of the, the thing um, uh, and I think that the through uh, uh, through meditating on Christ uh, Augustine is definitely um, perceiving and uh, and trying to get people to think and act more toward um, accepting some of the things that that we have been averse to and sort of going toward them as as actually a way um, toward, uh, you know, in his language, eternal life.
1: Yeah, it's interesting to me that Augustine, in writing a book called The City of God, really seems to care quite a lot about civic life. So he doesn't sort of fall back on a a kind of... um, escapism or retreatism he really does seem concerned about how to live with a kind of courage and resourcefulness and investment even it's just complicated by the fact that you have this sort of dual citizenship you you belong to two cities at the same time
0: yeah I don't know where I heard the proverb but there's um, apparently it's a Greek proverb that um, a city is only successful If people are willing to plant trees that they will not enjoy the shade of, Mm. um, Mm. so this sort of deferment, or um, uh, yeah, I mean, I suppose you know, I suppose in that image, if we're just gonna kind of run with that into absurdity, right? You're (laughs)
1: that's what we do.
0: (laughs) I'm gonna plant a tree and I'm going to be sunburned, but you know, maybe my kid will uh, he'll be able to hide. Yeah, so, I mean, I think there's definitely this kind of tension. I was reading Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mm -hmm. Mind, um, and there's sort of a distinguishing and a careful sort of line that has to be walked because um, human beings, he would say, are anti-fragile. So um, your muscles need resistance um, to continue to work properly, Mm -hmm. right? So the astronauts atrophy um and it's similar with your emotional and mental life uh, so he's opposed to some of the safe spaces um in the extremis that some places some campuses mm-hmm. are are building um because he says that there's there's plenty of research to show that um people that enjoy those spaces actually become more emotionally reactive to um stimulus and and things that are less traumatic or aversive. Um, So there is sort of there is sort of like this earthy wisdom um, to a willingness to kind of accept and lean into the the resistance of life. Um, Hmm. I think there's, there's some tensions there, right? Because, you know, I unfortunately have sort of this perpetual kind of like, are we, are we walking into sort of Calvin's theater of God's glory where, um, um, we've got this universe where, you know, horrible suffering is just the price we're willing to pay for some greater good later on down the line. But you know, the, that's a that might be a conversation mm-hmm. for another time. I I don't know, Craig, I wonder what, what I wonder what that makes you think. I mean, that sort of mm-hmm. anti fragility, the um, mm-hmm. and then trying to strike that balance yeah. between sort of inflicting suffering, expecting people to um, undertake unreasonable suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and needing that resistance to be who we are.
1: So what it makes me think of is martyrdom. Uh, Augustine is, (laughs) in some ways, he feels almost like this character in, you know, like a Tolkien battle saying, hold the line uh, to his bishops and the the people, the pastors in his area who are facing all kinds of pressures. And some of them just want to, You know put on their walking shoes or their running shoes and get out of there and he's yeah he's anti fragile with them for sure and I've I've been reading a lot of Peter Brown this week about Augustine and I've been really impressed (laughs) by the cross tensions that he's dealing with as he writes this book you know he's addressing elites in some ways but he's also addressing fellow pastors he's um, trying to deal with different kinds of problems all at the same time which is maybe why this book is so long um, but Ethan, in the sort of vein of anti-fragility, um, w- one way that we deal with the pressures of life is to is to go dualistic. Um, Augustine is one of the groups he's addressing here: the maniches in himself too. Um, but yeah, he—I I don't know if you could talk a little bit about how you kind of feel the presence of that dualism as a like a kind of constant temptation for Augustine that he's addressing
2: I, I was reading the other day that uh, Augustine was thought weird because hmm. uh, he read books in his head mm-hmm. um, he read silently to himself yeah. and I think there's something instructive there um, the normal habit is that if you're reading you're reading aloud so that other people can hear But I think there, there, there is definitely a move that begin, uh, at least, that we locate in Augustine. Particularly, I'm sure it has uh, legs elsewhere also, where like there's more of a privileging of the intellectual mind, and certainly, um, writing a work like this, um, ends up going in that direction. And it's Mm -hmm. just, in some ways, it's a it's an extension of probably the Platonic influence in the West. Um, At least that's what. Uh, that's where I'm finding it, mm-hmm. particularly um, uh, reading Plato's dialogues and how much it's just sort of assumed in civic life that people that are more attentive um, to what we would call the intellectual realm, what they would call um, the soul, those people who are able to, to attend to that and cultivate that just belong in higher positions, uh, by not just by virtue in the sense that they're going to get there, but by rights, that this is sort of the natural order and there's something, uh, I think. I think there is something to that in the way that Augustine uh, talks about martyrdom and the particular way in which he, he construes the purpose of dying or, or mm-hmm. taking on injury uh, for the for the sake of what's going on, uh, for the sake of uh, Christ, for the sake of the city of God. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it seems to. The, the The good that he's that he's imagining it, accomplishing it, accomplishing in some ways um, is very particular um, like the the life of the city of God is actually is right. obviously his concern, but it in some ways seems very individual. Uh, one of the one of the lines that really struck me was that he says that um, mm-hmm. then death was purchased by sinning now righteousness is fulfilled by dying. Mm-hmm. You know He's been so concerned over the course of this entire book as it relates to martyrdom um, with the fates of individual souls uh, mm-hmm. and whether or not they get into the city mm-hmm. of God and are numbered among the angels that are replacing those that fell um, or whatever. But it feels like there's something there, but it feels like there's there's a statement missing there if you're actually making that statement from the position, of, from the perspective of meditating on the life of Christ because it wasn't just that Jesus died um, and saved his own soul. Um, hmm. uh, he died, and it wasn't just that he died uh, in the high position in the sense of like uh, he knew he was right and his death was just sort of like a way to, to put himself above everybody else. Um, it was just, uh, he died on behalf of the people. Uh, his death put him above. Um, I almost want uh, that sentence to say, uh, now righteousness is fulfilled by dying on behalf of sinners. I think the, the enmity between the city of God and the city of man, and the, even, even the deaths, the, the righteous are willing to die for the sake of, city of the city of God, is doing something weird, is doing something that I don't think is particularly helpful for the for the the purpose of civics and that um, for the purpose of thinking about our actual life together in the city. I don't know. I feel like it could very much have uh, and has had uh, uh, pretty grave consequences moving forward within the West. Mm-hmm. But yeah, please tell me what you guys mm-hmm. think about that.
0: Yeah, just thinking about the sort of privileging of the intellectual, or yeah, I mean, I think there's the opportunity for elitism there, but even something like acceptance and commitment therapy, the thrust is to learn to organize your behavior in such a way that you are privileging, you know, they talk about values. I mean, but functionally, we're talking about sort of choosing a proper end for your life. This is the type of human being that I believe I'm supposed to be. And so you are given ways of thinking, skills um, that will help you basically endure the ups and downs because this sort of retrospective that you have after enduring is actually the thing that's going to sort of torment you over time if you are consistently betraying that person that you've said you want to be. That, that's sort of the logic. So there is, I mean, I think there is sort of a, a real seed of truth there. I guess the other thing I thought about was there's um, a teacher, um, Philip Carey, and he just, he was talking about um, Plato, Socrates. And I had never heard this, but um, when Socrates takes the hemlock, his friends ask him how he wants to be buried, And Socrates says, you can try and bury me, but I'm not going to be here. I mean, if you can catch me, right, the implication being that he really is his soul and that once he's died, his soul is going to, you know, escape. And so what you're going to be burying is, you know, something that's not him anymore.
1: Yeah. The second thing we wanted to talk about, we weren't sure what to call it. Let's talk a bit about babies. Um, I did begin this whole conversation by quoting augustine saying we bring with us at our birth the beginning of our death it's almost humorous how augustine really is hard on babies he doesn't seem to be the kind he like forgets his pastoral manner or something when it comes to infants you've read confessions maybe the most recently of us do you remember how he talks about infants and isn't it in the confessions that he talks about babies what's what's he say
0: The only reason that we call infants innocent is because they don't have the power (laughs) to exert their will over us.
1: Uh, And I think, uh, let's see, in this book, book 13 of The City of God, he describes infants as torporous, which is, you know, (laughs) not exactly the compliment you can pass to a a new mom. Your baby is so torporous. Thanks. (laughs) Honey, he says our baby's torporous. (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's right i i don't think like after this week's kind of reading into some of the background of augustine and some of the history i don't think he's against babies or against sexuality he he's really always trying to hold like an argument in two different directions and with different audiences and it's it's always tensioned for him and if you sort of pull out this one quotation like Andrew and I have just done, I mean, he, he looks like he's the, the worst guy ever, but um, it's probably the the people he happens to be arguing with at the moment that are sort of tilting him in that direction. <laughs>
0: I was thinking of Irenaeus's book Against Heresies, and I just ima- imagine Augustine having... <laughs> <laughs> this manuscript sitting in the back that he never really finished against infants. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's like Doctors Without Borders, but we got bishops without babies, or I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason he's he's picking this topic up is he's trying to think about like how have we been ruined? Uh, how has human nature changed? Is maybe a gentler way to put it after the fall. And he talks about this sort of generational punishment that we undergo, uh, which while we were reading this week, Andrew mentioned is, is sort of like sin as STD. Like it, it, it gets passed on generationally. Um, the verb that Augustine uses is vitiated, which uh, that's a useful word as well. Vitiated. as
0: a cool word. Yeah.
1: What is that?
0: That is Ethan's dog. <laughs> <laughs> her, her lungs have been vitiated. <laughs> they received her that way. In their defense, yeah. Yeah. So
2: the vitiated human nature. Yeah. I wonder how much. Oh yeah. Thank you. I don't know. I keep wanting to to go back to the to in thinking about um the the, the perversion. I guess that's a word that Augustine likes using a lot of the time. Um. Uh. The perversion of human nature i almost want to talk more about hurt in respect to that especially early on in the book when he's describing um when he's describing roman culture and all its opulence and whatever there's some sense of like how ruined um the uh the the roman people have become um you can talk about the hurt the 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 damaging um, whatever you want to say of the human nature that, that he's imagining um, as regard in their relationship to sex, um, I don't know if that, it, like in some some ways, his his problems with sex that, that are so storied uh, mm-hmm. comes out of growing up in that culture or not. Oh, uh, the, the illustration that he uses in the the Roman response to uh, the sack of Rome, which in part you know inspires the writing of this thing, like he 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 sort of marvels at the fact that all these other places in the Roman Empire, all these other prominent cities um, announce these like, you know, days and weeks of mourning uh, over the fact that that Rome, this really which, you know, is no longer the seat of power Constantinople is at this point, but it's still like really important, mm-hmm. um, a really important symbol. Um, and he sort of marvels at the fact all the other cities in the, the Empire are mourning, and the people of Rome that are actually in Rome are going out and partying. And in a certain sense, they don't even know how to mourn anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't know how to deal with with pain except by inundating
1: themselves with greater and greater pleasures. He seems to have actual admiration for early Romans. You know, uh, he cites some great Roman figures who have courage and have stoic bearing and have, you know, fortitude as as a virtuous possession, and he doesn't really hold back from admiring them. Um, I don't know if we can, you know, we're all we're often doing this kind of dabbling in psychoanalysis on Augustine, but I, I, yeah, there's something going on there where he admires a certain kind of manliness or a certain kind of machismo, even in the way, you know, like we were joking about that when we were reading this section together aloud, that like the way he talks about babies does sound very almost like stereotypically masculine in some way. And maybe even some of his talk about martyrdom is shaped by a certain kind of, I don't know, gendered sort of approach to life and suffering. And, you know, it's almost like he's saying to the other bishops, I, I mean I got to be careful here. I'm not I, I don't want to be impious about this. Like there's a lot of discourse in the New Testament too about um giving up one's life. But I I can't help thinking it's like woven with some notions about what it means to be a man, what it means to man up so to speak in in this time.
0: Uh I was listening to a podcast with uh Paul and Sarah Hinlicky and they were uh they mentioned this um early account of a young mother that was martyred and, uh, yeah, and, you know, and as sort of mythic, sort of pseudo-mythic accounts go, it's sort of, right, like hats off. If that's actually how you got te- torn apart by a lion, then, you know, um, offering the speech as it's sort of tearing your ribs, you know. It's um, But uh, anyway, um, they were talking about a, a sermon that Augustine gave referencing um, sort of this account and he says at one point, isn't it wonderful how much like men these women were uh, in sort of the stoic way that they accepted their punishment and all this kind of stuff. So I want
2: to I want to propose that I, I, re- I understand there's probably some strain of, of machismo going on. I also want to think about, especially in light of some of the things that we've seen nowadays and some of the, the weird relationships to pain that we have in the modern day that even in what we call manliness it's not just like a man up and take it yeah a filthy animal or something like that um that there is that there is something like a certain kind of healthy weakness to that and in being willing Mm. to make oneself vulnerable to pain because i think in the modern day where we are more inundated with with the ability to uh sort of um turn the switches on the pleasure machines that are our bodies um and I want to say that there's something about what gets called machismo what gets called just sort of like this very patriarchal man up and take it um within the Christian tradition um even from somebody like Augustine that has more of a, a a bent of just like a willingness to be vulnerable in that way um, uh, you know earlier in the book there's there's sort of a little death that you could talk about that that feels more relevant to the how we think than does getting torn apart by lions but you know Augustine talked earlier much earlier in the book about why Rome has gotten so bad in part because um, people aren't willing to deny themselves the benefits of pleasing the evil man mm-hmm. um uh, they aren't willing to die that little death for the sake of righteousness. They just want the the pleasures. They want the benefits that are afforded them by their society, and they're not willing to give give that up. Mm-hmm. And I think, like you know, you can talk about that in terms of manliness, but I think there's there there is in that something that I don't know. I guess we would call more feminine, um, mm-hmm. some a willingness to receive, um, both what is good and what is bad when it is required of us. Hmm.
1: Um, I don't know what you guys think about that, but that's what that brings to my mind. I appreciate that as a kind of qualification of what Andrew and I were getting at. I, I think it is maybe a little too low hanging a piece of fruit to sort of critique Augustine for being um, for his teaching being gendered towards masculinism. I, I think that's relatively easy in that patriarchal culture to sort of point that out. So I I, I I like that. And in sort of support of what you're saying, Ethan, in Augustine's day, I understand that marriage was sometimes seen by super pious people as relegating you to kind of non-important status in the the life of sanctity, the life of the church even. And Augustine took marriage more seriously than that. So I think, in a sense, we can say he took women more seriously than that. Uh, He deigned, so to speak, to give instruction to married couples. As I understand it, again, from reading Peter Brown this week, that wasn't necessarily widely observed among pastors. So, yeah, I mean, some of this is funny. Like, Augustine gives, you know, earnest instruction to couples about their sex lives. Um, But he defends himself. And I, I brought a quotation from one of his sermons. He says, it may seem indecent to go on and on about such a topic, but what are we compared to the sanctity of Paul? With pious humility, with healing words, with God's own medicine, Paul has entered human bedrooms. Uh, Such holiness as his leans over the beds of married persons and looks at them lying there. Uh, Wow. I don't know how, um, (laughs) you know, Augustine, like, is so inadvertently voyeuristic in his way of describing the Apostle Paul there, but Paul's thorn was that he had a peeping problem. (laughs) Uh, In the uh third letter to the Corinthians, he addressed this. Yes.
2: Uh, I I don't know I I, on this the when we were reading, I'm not sure I caught uh everything that has to do (laughs) like specifically with sex that he was talking about but it does make me think about like yes like even um uh saint john chrysostom or chrysostom i don't know how you say it and i think he's he's early or late 300s if i'm remembering correctly um but he has a little treatise that like he feels the need to collect sermons and write a thing uh um or he, yeah, he feels a need to sermonize pretty consistently on, um, marriage and that mm. him being a monk, he was never married. He, he was born to a single mother, became a monk. Um, but he feels the need to, um, in the, in the time that he lived, and I think he was in Constantinople. Um, uh, he was at least in a very wealthy city, uh he feels the need to talk very specifically and strongly about the sacramental nature of marriage. Mm. Um, and that it is a calling, um, that requires, um, like self, self denial mm. and sacrifice in a different manner, but to the same extent that monasticism and, uh, c- uh celibacy does. Um, so there was some sense in which this, this, the, the, Marriage as a, as a good uh, did need to be argued for. There were multiple people, uh,
0: very prominent voices that were arguing for it. Um, Jacques Philippe, um, a Catholic uh, writer, uh, priest, he says uh, being a priest is not that much different than being married. Um, when you get married, you say to all of the women but one. As a priest, you say no to just one more. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Anyway,
2: I guess I guess uh, I'm, I'm missing, I'm not seeing it in Augusta. I'm missing the fact that we're talking about like his perspective on sin being congenital—that it is not—is um, not that each person dies because they they are just. They they just sin during their life. It's just that it is something that is inherited and that is inherently sexual.
0: Um, no, I ju- it just was striking me in in both Augustine and I've read some Maximus the Confessor this week. But the emphasis on sort of birth and and this sort of congenital nature of of sin and uh, the transmission of the curse um, and how that sort of really directly plays into the way that these folks talk about the virgin birth and the importance of mary's virginity
2: no because it's you know it's the when you think about the biblical narrative even even just within the bible not looking at any of these these uh sort of philosophical treatments it's a story of families and genealogies people think something that is being passed down whether that's some sort of even if it's just a spoken curse but from one patriarch but it's something that is passed down through families there's some sense in which the flesh of Adam all the way down through you know Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Esau all these people there's something that is being inherited and passed down and it is it is something that the very first person suffered and everyone is suffering thereafter so like the the fact that I know I know I've read in a lot of those guys how much they make of the fact that Jesus did not get his flesh from a man. There was no male that gave the seed. Hmm. Um, it wasn't, he wasn't derived from the body of a man. That is somehow uh, in the way that they are understanding sin and that the way they are understanding uh, the, the, the miraculousness of Christ's appearance I'm hmm. um, the importance of Christ's appearance that is how some that is essential to it.
0: Yeah, and the right the the sort of analog between Adam being formed from sort of pure earth, right? Like um and then just the assumptions about the role that a woman plays in in childbearing at that time, right? Like you plant a seed in the ground of the woman, right? Like there there wasn't sort of this sophisticated biological notion, but there's sort of an analogy there, right? Uh, That God is pulling from this earth um, a man. Uh, I don't know if that's worth saying,
1: but I just did. I think the thing that showed up in our reading this week that sort of blew my head open was when we were talking about Augustine's understanding of the vitiation of human nature, the way it's been torn. I I have to say that what I've learned most from Augustine in the course of my life, not always knowing that he was the teacher behind this lesson, is that human desires are seriously out of whack. And I think this week in our conversation about what it means for human nature to be so torn. Andrew, you brought up that he has a different account of the of human depravity than someone like Maximus the Confessor. And I've been thinking about that ever since you, you mentioned mm-hmm. that um, that Maximus sees, Evil in human nature in a different way than Augustine, like could you talk a little bit about the difference between the two and their accounts of depravity
0: yeah and and I think you know if we had an Augustine scholar in the room um he would probably come after me but but i I am one of three rubes here, so we're we're just gonna propose this uh as sort of a thesis for now and uh and I'll Get corrected. Let somebody correct it. That's right. I'll be corrected appropriately and when the time arises. Um, But um, yeah, I think the difference that I see is that Augustine seems to be saying that human nature has been spoiled or vitiated such that, yeah, that, that human nature has been ruined such that we are now capable of. Desiring evil as our proper end, any nature in in sort of this conception has a proper goal. And you are only free insofar as you are free to pursue that goal and realize that goal. Um, So for Maximus, um, sin and choosing to sin is irrationality and bondage. You're not working properly. Um, and you need to be healed. Augustine would say, from God's perspective, we would, some folks, I suppose, need to be healed, but we are actually acting rationally. We can rationally and rightly because our nature has been broken and directed not primarily at God, but at evil. It makes our condemnation radically different from the, from the perspective of God is, is this a creature that's sort of not functioning properly is, um, afflicted in bondage, um, confused, or, uh, is it actually a creature that whose faculties are working properly and those faculties working properly are ruining
1: things. Something needs to be done about them. Let me say, let me say it back to you see if I've got this right. So I'll try to outrub your rubing here. Uh, um, Augustine sees our perversity as being rational in a certain way like we have what we think is a good that is set before us and we, we go after it and so God is so to speak more justified in in punishing us we're not out of our heads so to speak whereas Maximus sees us as as acting irrationally and so what we need is I don't know Corrective. We we need to be shown our irrationality. Glossing that.
0: No, I think you're right. I mean, right. It's a subtle difference, but the one thing the one thing that I think is um, that needs to be changed in your description is it's not that we think we see in Augustine's picture. It's not even necessarily that we think we see a good. Maximus would say that that's all we ever do is we think we see a good and it's only a partial good that oh. is maybe even only good for right. me and only in a way that my sort of right. psyche has sort of twisted and manufactured that it is a good. What I see Augustine saying is that we can actually want to break it. Mm-hmm. I can want evil, right? I, I can want to hurt you not because it's good for anything, but because it hurts you. Hmm. Yeah.
2: Wow it makes me think about um, I don't know like the, in, in some ways the, the, the a good place to go when thinking about the difference mm-hmm. um, I forget which psalm it is at this point but the, the you know the famous one that says uh, I was uh, I was born in sin in sins my mother bore me the just like the the radically different approaches that get taken to that based on where you're coming from where one just sort of imagines that like... You're ruined from the beginning, right? Like ruined from the beginning, in the sense, like in the in, 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 at the very beginning, there's something that is just going to be wrong about you. Mm-hmm. Um, versus, like you are born into something that, when we were talking about it, sin mm-hmm. is congenital or familial. Mm-hmm. Um, you are born into something larger that you can't escape. You're mm-hmm. you're stuck in it, and you can't get out of it yourself.
1: Right. It's like being born into whiteness or something like white supremacy, you're, you're still culpable, but you didn't like invent this thing and.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Or even, or even like on, if we're talking in American culture, on the other end of the spectrum where we talk about like, you know, kids in the seventh grade and uh, certain in like black communities being bound, for, like just sort of assumed that they're going to prison. Mm. There's like, mm-hmm. there's something that you get born into mm-hmm. that is bigger than just mm-hmm. um uh, some sort of uh, immaterial guilt that you inherit. Um, it is like the whole thing. And the whole thing seems to be is so misdirected and has been so misdirected for so long that you can't even apprehend the good. Like, you want the good, but everything, all the tools you're be- being given um, to see that clearly... Uh, are flawed by this 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 long, long history that we are all a part of
0: there so there was a guest worship leader at the at the church, and he is still employed at a church where James McDonald was sort of the the head of everything and James McDonald was sort of the he well he is he did not pass away. He is the now disgraced sort of former mm-hmm. leader of this large fellowship of churches, mm-hmm. church planning movement that that I was a part of. And so this guest leader comes in to help us, okay um right. and there's a bunch of people from our church uh leaders and stuff like that interacting with him um and I haven't sort of kept up with what James McDonald is up to, but I guess he's he's still up to some foolishness um and somebody was making a comment about how um God has really hardened that man's heart um and and there you know there was sort of a, a judgmental tone um and at the time, I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but, but pretty soon after I left, I, it sort of occurred to me, like, if God's hardening that man's heart, he used all of us in that room to do it. We filled the guy's pews. We bought the guy's books. Liked, shared his sermons. Like, even if we could all say with complete earnestness that the only thing we were interested in was pursuing Christ in that church... Even if we could say that, it doesn't change the fact that our interaction with that system could not but encourage and reward the things in that man that turned out to be his downfall. Um, Yeah, so I feel like that's just sort of like, you know, in microcosm what we're talking about is um, even our intentions at their best seem incapable of sort of like weeding out the uh yeah yeah the, the the potential for things to just go wrong
1: the last thing we need to talk about in this book 13 is death and i don't know how to say that with a smile. I mean, as a rube, I don't know how to say it as a rube. Like we need to talk about death. Um, I can't help thinking about Kohalit who, you know, in the book of Ecclesiastes says that the it's better to go to a funeral than a birthday party. Um, so maybe, maybe a rube could say that, but it seems like the rube is the one at the birthday party. My birthday
2: party's canceled. everybody. <laughs> it is Ethan's I'm birthday. I'm turning 30, so I'm basically dying anyway, right? One foot
1: in the <laughs> grave, the other on a banana peel. Augustine says there is no one, it goes without saying, who is not nearer to death this year than he was last year. He has a wretched eloquence when it comes to death. It just burrows into me. Maybe it's the year we're living through, it's the time we're living through. All are driven on at the same speed and hurried along the same road to the same goal. The man whose life was short passed his days as swiftly as the longer lived.
2: And I think the... the I mean you can we can redirect the conversation if if this isn't precisely where we want to go with it. Obviously, there's more to say about what Augustine says specifically about death and the the sort of grave, terrible thing that it is. We're thinking about how how mm. to form people, yeah, in one sense uh, whenever we're we're, mm. we're brushing over either of these to- yeah. topics whether we're talking about pain, pleasure, or death. and even even if we want to get more specifically <laughs> how to form people who seem to be uh, vitiated <laughs> <laughs> whose nature seems to be vitiated in our opinion right is it best mm. um to sort of slap people's hands um and mm. give them uh disincentives right. is it best to incentivize them or do you just have to do away with right. um with people that don't fit the th- those mm. were those would all be methods that would be imagined to be um good ways of running a city it's interesting then that augustine even when he's talking about death and trying to You know walk this line between saying death is not is never a good thing but it ends up being used as a good in the city of god for a b and c reasons um Mm -hmm. there's sort of a there's sort of like a i guess in sort of a a socratic way a stoic way um sort of a willing subjection to uh um, the bad ones and a, a, a willing self-denial of the, the, the good things that could motivate us or at least the, the pleasurable things that could motivate us. There's something really interesting to me in particular about the Christian tradition in particular about uh, that you see, I think in Augustine as he's talking about these subjects in um, the way that it's trying to, to walk a very thin line um, in terms of how it relates to them. Um, in the face of a Roman culture that has very particular views about what what goods are accomplished through the use of these three things pain sex and death
1: mm-hmm. I think it's pain babies and death I'm oh, sorry <laughs> <laughs> I have a kind of fascination with the movie I saw uh, maybe half a dozen years ago mm-hmm. called the gray it was a Liam Neeson movie and I think the thing that really got to me about this movie is the way it talked about death which was a very Roman sort of stoic way of talking about death. But there's this one striking scene where uh, a man has been mauled, I guess, by some wolves. He says, something's wrong with me. And the Liam Neeson character, whose name is Otway, says, you're going to die. That's what's happening. And then he kind of talks him into death. Keep looking at me. It's all right. It's all right. Look, look at me. Keep looking at me. It's, it's all right. It'll slide over you. It'll start to feel warm, nice and warm. It'll move over you. It's all right. And I, I can't help thinking of that as a, as a particular way of forming people towards death, to use your language, Ethan. Yeah.
2: No, and the relationship to death is it, it really important to life. I forget who it was. I think it, I think it might have been Gregory of Nazianzus who says mm. that, um, the Christian. The Christian faith is nothing but a constant meditation on death. Clearly, in Augustine, the fact that he feels the need at certain, at one point in this book, to just like discuss whether or not we should just call life death. There's certainly a sense in which like that has to be reckoned with. And a lot of Augustine himself seems to realize that I wonder how much this is. This is the sort of thing that makes people go like, did this guy enjoy life at all? Mm -hmm. Like, was there anything that he actually Mm -hmm. found pleasure in 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 not not in in what he would consider a holy way? Mm -hmm.
1: Um, Yeah, Peter Brown said he really loved light. So he he would describe the play of light over grass or the sea and. The, the fall of sunlight in a room and so yeah he does seem to enjoy some dimensions of life and sometimes it almost seems like his critique of the pleasures of this life is shaped by this sort of profound in i don't know he he found great allure yeah in them.
2: and i suppose like the fact that he he is fighting against various other people um who keep trying to the platonists or very or other groups that Keep trying to construe in his mind um the creation of the physical right. world as the creation of a giant prison for souls the fact that he's uh that he's fighting against that tells you that there's something about even the 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 physical aspect of the world which gets maligned in basically every ancient author's language in one way or another there's something here that he's experiencing that he's like no guys you're 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 too you're too dark it's yeah. a gift and i and I mean his love of light would make that, that seems very appropriate. You know that 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 wonder with natural phenomena mm. um, feels like a constant mm. place of respite for people that are embroiled in a in an overly developed society, right? <laughs> like I, even even when you look at uh, Plato in Athens, the fact that his allegory has to do with dancing images on a cave wall, which was certainly uh, a pleasurable pastime uh, in his mm-hmm. in his day. Like, or, you know, like the, the artificial ways of, like, being entertained and okay with life um, at, in some sort of representational form um, uh, is, like, it's just something that I think when we were talking about sex, like, I think it just sort of numbs you. And being able to, like, go out and look at something that just happens uh, without the input of human beings. Uh, it speaks to it just speaks to to that kind of time period in which he lived and i think it speaks to our our time period as well
1: so i'm going to wish you a happy birthday thank you hope you enjoy lots of light (laughs) and the deep breathing of your dog sparky (laughs) i wish you consulted with andrew and me before you settled on the name sparky it feels like we could have come up with Something it's, less right Vitiated is going in the lexicon. And Andrew, next time you're in a room full of pastors and they're saying, boy, he has really hardened their hearts, you just say, you look at them with narrowed eyes and say, he has vitiated their hearts. I am hearts.
0: going to be an endless irritation. No one's going to like it. St. Augustine was a guy and has been tend to do. He died, but he left us a big book. So let's stop and take a look. This is... Two cities, three
2: rooms